Hey, Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome back to your regularly scheduled true crime episodes of Unnatural. Episode 70, right? Yeah. I don't know. I said episode 70? Yeah. We're so close to 100. I know. That's crazy. Yeah. 30 more? Yeah, 30 more. And I'm guessing whoever committed this murder today also crazy. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And this is an old one because we all know how much I love old cases, even though I haven't really covered very many lately. But today we are heading back to the late 19th century to one of my favorite cities in Duluth, Minnesota. And we are going to be talking about the mysterious murder at Minnesota Point, which even given the time kind of took the nation by storm. There was a nationwide manhunt for a suspect. And the ending is a little, well, open-ended. kind of a bummer. Oh, a bummer. Okay. It's kind of a bummer. Well, let's face it. We're used to bummers around here. <laughs> yeah, we are. Let's get into it. August 22nd, 1894, seven-year-old Guy Browning was walking along Oatka Beach in Duluth, Minnesota, and he was sent down there by his mother to gather driftwood for their stove or the fire or something, when he noticed a hand in the driftwood that had gathered on the shoreline. So immediately he started running home to tell his mother, Mary, who immediately reported it to the police. I wonder if she believed him at first. You know how seven-year-olds sometimes stretch the truth. I wonder if she had to go down there and see it for herself. No, she didn't. Okay, so very trusting mother. Yeah, according to the reports, like she did not go down there right. to see it first. So the police chief at the time, Harry Armstrong, the captain, Sam Thompson, and the St. Louis County coroner, Dr. John Eklund, as well as um, Detective Bob Benson and Tom Hayden all went down to the beach where Guy and Mary were waiting. Um, they were kind of a ways away from where the body was, and the sweet little boy like did not want to go back down there again, so they were staying a good ways away, and all he did was just like point his finger in the direction. You're on your and, own. <laughs> yeah, like a piece out home slices. I mean, like the police and the detectives did ask a few questions about the events of that morning, how Mary had sent them down there to gather driftwood. He left around 10.30. And so they just kind of got what they needed and they, Guy and Mary went home and the police kind of started their investigation. Captain Thompson started moving away the driftwood to kind of uncover um, the body and they found that her head was tightly wrapped in a brown cape lined with a dark red maroon colored satin 
And apparently when they unwrapped the cape from around her head, blood was coming out of her nose and also came out of a really large and deep wound on the back of her head. Hmm. And she had brown hair, which was just like soaked and crusty and icky with blood. She also apparently had teeth marks on her hand as well as bruises on her neck. Now, right away, they kind of guessed that she was either strangled or obviously beaten over the head, but they couldn't, you know, right there tell what her actual cause of death was. But near her, they also found what they assumed to be the murder weapon, which was like a really heavy oak stick that was like four feet long and it had blood on it. And one end of it was kind of pointed like a like a stake. Yeah. Yeah. They also found a brown headband with a piece of and and a piece of turtle shell comb hmm. nearby. So she was wearing a brown skirt and matching jacket. Her underwear also appeared to be new and was made of silk. She had two rings on her fingers and also a bracelet that had a bunch of little charms on it. And um, it had 12 little charms. Six of them had engravings, and they said father, mother, sister, brother, Mabel, and May. Mm. So, as we'll see, this charm bracelet is very important to the investigation, to identifying who she is. Um, They also found an Egyptian-style brooch that was pinned at the top of her shirt, and she also had earrings. And at the time, given that this is, you know, 1894, all of this, everything she had, her jewelry, her clothing, um, her undergarments suggested that she seemed to be pretty well off as far as um, financials were concerned. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah, they also had guessed that um, looking at her rings, she had been recently married. And... Um, When they searched her pockets, they couldn't find any money, no identification. Um, Her clothes didn't have a name or anything written on it either. She had light skin and apparently had a mole under her chin that probably could have easily identified her with anybody who knew her. She was about five foot six and 130 pounds. And the authorities estimated that she had died within 24 hours of being discovered. I was just thinking that because of the blood, the way you described it, it didn't sound like she had been dead too long. Yeah. And they also guessed that her body had been dumped there and kind of covered up with the wood. Maybe they didn't think it was likely that she had drowned. And by 5 p.m. that day, her body was put onto a little tugboat and carried off to the morgue. Yes. The detectives from Superior, Wisconsin, also came to assist in examining the body to look for any signs of who could have killed her and her identity. But it appears that nobody had recognized her, so they decided to photograph her. And um, they, which was pretty new at the time, yeah, I mean, it hadn't been around too long, yeah. And so, what they did was like they washed her up, cleaned her up, they also cleaned um, her clothes and redressed her. Um, but by the sound of it, they kind of were keeping an eye out on missing persons reports locally, but it sounded like nobody had reported her missing either. 
Um, now keep in mind that at this point in time, Duluth is a relatively new city, right? but it was growing very quickly. It was kind of like a business hub for trading grain and iron ore, yeah, lumber. And f- for people that don't know, it was right there on the Lake Superior. So it was getting all of that boat traffic from all the other Great Lakes areas. So news of the woman's death quickly spread throughout the city, and many were worried that because her killer had not been caught, they wondered if he would strike again, if this was going to be like a serial killer type thing, or if it was just a one-off, um, because there had been several murders in the area over the last couple of decades, um, but few of them were women, and the assailant was often caught. Now, the next day, August or August 23rd, Hundreds, hundreds of people came by the morgue to see if they could identify her and provide any leads for the investigator. Was this more town gossip or were they actually generally like concerned and trying to help? I think it was a little bit of both. I think some people genuinely did want to see if maybe it was a friend, family member, loved one. Um, if they did know her, but I also think that some people came by just because they wanted to look at a dead body. Yeah. If I'm being honest, small town, that kind of thing doesn't happen very often. This is a big deal. Yeah. Um, and one of the people who came by to see the body was Kate Branterst. Now she worked at one of the local dry goods stores and a Miss Anderson was also there and they were convinced that the dead woman was the same one that they had seen in a streetcar that previous Tuesday night. And they were certain of this um, mostly because of the bracelet. Kate did do an interview with um, the Duluth Evening Herald at the time, and she said that she had briefly met the woman and who appeared to be her husband. So she said that Tuesday they were crossing the canal on one of the free city ferries and then took a streetcar from Minnesota Point to Owatka Beach. And they got off the line near one of the summer camps near that point. So during that time, about 2,000 people apparently were camping in the area, is my understanding. Like this kind of side of the peninsula, if you're at all familiar with Duluth geography, um, was very popular with campers. Mm Mm-hmm. And Kate said that shortly after 7 p.m. that Tuesday, she and several other people, including the woman and her male companion, were on the streetcar. She described what the woman was wearing and also described the man as probably 40 to 45 years old, about 5'11". He had a darker complexion, dark curly hair, dark eyes, and a mustache. She also said that he was wearing a dark suit and a derby hat. Which was probably a lot of guys back then. Yeah, for sure. Like this is a very, I mean, this is a, this is a very generic description by today's standards, you know? Um, but she said that like, she wasn't wearing this brown coat and skirt that she was wearing when she was found, but she did recognize that bracelet. Um, she said that the woman had appeared happy, but couldn't say the same with the man that he appeared to be irritated every time she spoke. I mean, I've I've seen some relationships like that. <laughs> yeah. They assumed that the couple was either new to Duluth or doing just visiting, doing touristy things because um, uh, during the streetcar ride, she had recalled that they 
we're kind of making mention of some of the sites, the boats, the campers kind of doing like ooh ahs. Yeah. Whereas if you live there, if you're from there, you don't give a shit. That's how it is anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, like that's how, like, that's how I totally feel about the Mall of America. Like people oh, are like, too. ooh, the Mall of America. And yeah. I'm like, really? It's, 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 it kind of sucks. It does. It, and it's annoying and it takes forever to get in and out of there. As I had mentioned, a photographer took photos of the body, and those ended up being pretty widely distributed in newspapers all over the region in hopes of identifying her. Yeah, like newspapers back in the day were crazy. They would not do that today. No. Can you imagine the paper you work for doing that? No, never. No. I mean, like you might print. I mean, would they even do like a sketch? Maybe. They'd do a description. But these days, it would all get leaked onto the internet anyway. Yeah. So anyway, a dentist also came to examine her teeth. Uh, Several had been filled with gold. Six were fake. And this was not cheap work that she had done on her teeth, which was kind of more evidence pointing to the fact that she and her husband were likely well off and considered in like the first class. But they also hoped that maybe getting um, a hold of her dental records would help identify her. And over the next several days, leads came in from all over the place, but nothing was really panning out or it was just people kind of asking um, questions, trying to get in the know. And then two unidentified men came by the morgue to say they had encountered the dead woman. They had also been in that same streetcar that I mentioned earlier. And one of them said that they had joked about noticing her bracelet and possibly robbing her and selling it to get money for booze. Oh, funny joke there. Super funny. Yeah, let's just like joke about violence against women so you can buy some alcohol. Super cool. Even if I did say that, I wouldn't tell the police. I'd just be like, yeah, I noticed the bracelet. (laughs) Yeah. Way to make yourself be a prime (laughs) suspect. Like, oh, yeah. Like, we joked about robbing her and now she's dead. But her brace, but we were talking about stealing her bracelet and her bracelet is still there. So, So, obviously, we didn't do it. It's not us. Couldn't be. (laughs) Fucking weirdos. (laughs) And then... Um, a man by the name of George Free said that he had met her weeks earlier with a Mr. Cummings from Illinois, and the couple were visiting with no real purpose. He said that he had recalled the brown dress the woman was wearing as the same of the dead woman. And George said that Mr. Cummings said he had left his wife after a fight in Chicago, met up in New Orleans with this woman who he was pretending was his wife and then she had allegedly taken off on him and left him in Duluth and then he ran away himself wow so this seems like a good lead it seems yeah. a little seems a little sus a bet so the cops are following up on it they did find Mr. Cummings in Michigan with the woman in question. Mm-hmm. So, that was a dead end. But luckily, neither of them were dead. They're pursuing all leads. That's a good thing. They they are pursuing all leads. No, it, it is kind of crazy to me that some of this just seems to be taking like 
days to do. Yeah, that's true. Or, well, which is kind of crazy given the time because it's not like you can just email on over to, you know, someone down in or like call them like on their cell phone or whatever. No. So like just the fact just the fact that they're able to make like pretty quick work of this is is I mean, they're still like in the horse and buggies, so jeez. Yeah, but they have streetcars. Streetcars, yeah. And trains. But not like actual automobiles yet. Yeah. So just a couple days later, on August 26th, a newspaper boy discovered the body of a man who had washed up on the lake shore side of Minnesota Point. So same generalish area. Now, this body had been in the water for quite a while and was pretty decomposed and he was pretty unrecognizable. But his feet were bound with a necktie and his hands were tied together with a handkerchief. They suspected pretty much right away that maybe this was the man who had been seen with the woman days earlier. Mm -hmm. But it turns out. It was unrelated. Unrelated. This man was named Joseph McNamee. He was from Kansas. Mm. And he had disappeared from his hotel on August 15th, and his buddies thought that he just didn't want to pay, so he just kind of skipped out on the hotel bill. (laughs) And um, his kind of roommates and friends said that he was really depressed. He had gone through like a really horrible breakup, came to Duluth to kind of drown, drown his sorrows, fix his broken heart, yada, yada, yada. And then they thought that perhaps the manner of death may have been suicide instead. But didn't you say he was bound? Like his hands were bound? Well, I mean, I, I guess he could it. have. He could have done it to himself just to prevent himself from Getting swimming. A, yeah, that's true. You know? I guess he really did drown himself in his sorrow. He literally, <sighs> quite. So finally, even though she was still not identified the dead woman was to be buried mind you it's been a few weeks now yeah that she's just been hanging out decomposing, decomposing in the morgue which is really just kind of like a basement room yeah that's Ugh. kept you know it's not i can't imagine that would smell good hopefully they had some air fresheners down there <sighs> hopefully who knows some good ventilation I doubt it. <laughs> um, so she was buried in the Forest Hill Cemetery in Duluth on September 2nd. Now, like a day prior to this, and keep in mind that she was still very much big news. Even though she was buried and, you know, I think by the by the time she was buried, thousands of people had come to wow. see her. Um, but just... A day or two before she was buried, a fire had destroyed like somewhere around 200,000 acres of land and killed 400 people. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like nearby? Um, I don't. And I didn't. I didn't write down where, but I don't. It was in the region. Not. Yeah. In the region. And so with that, her death figuring out who she was had kind of become old news as far as like the newspapers and you know well yeah gossip one compared to 400 people dying i mean i can see why yeah but our detective benson still hadn't given up hope and we'll kind of see that he's a little bit of an mvp in hmm. my opinion even though like if you like really dig he had some he had some issues we're not going to get into that though 
But um, he hadn't given up hope, and he had a little bit of a hunchy hunch. So he popped on down to Minneapolis, armed with flyers, with her picture on it, you know, kind of her information, asking to identify her. Now, they were posted all over town. Makes sense. The big city. And hundreds of people called the police to either ask questions about her or share information that could possibly lead to her identity. And the most promising lead came in on September 7th by a lady named Anna Gao. Now, she operated a boarding house in North Minneapolis, and she said that she recognized the woman, that she was a former resident that lived there, and her name was Lena Olson. The next day, Lena's sister Lizzie met with Detective Benson, who also confirmed that the dead woman did look like her sister. Now, Lizzie uh, worked for a wealthy family in Lake Minnetonka. She said her sister also worked as a servant. So this sounds really promising, right? Yeah. And Detective Benson and Lizzie took a train to Duluth so she would be able to look at the dead woman's effects and confirm whether or not they belonged to her sister. And she did confirm that each item belonged to her sister, Lena. Um, She kind of had a little backstory for for where all of these things came from. And that bracelet, once again, she said had been gifted to her by another resident at this uh, boarding house that she was living and working at or working through. Whatever. Bracelet is really playing a prominent role in the investigation here. Yeah. So, Elena P. Olson was born June 23rd, 1862, making her just 32 years old at the time of her murder. Mm. Her parents were Peter and Bertha. She had several siblings, Andrew, Eric, and Lizzie. So, she was... um, I think she was the second oldest. It was Andrew, Lena, Eric, and Lizzie, if I remember correctly. Her family had immigrated to the United States from Norway the year before she was born. So they had first moved to Decorah, Iowa. Hey, I know that place. I know. Like many immigrant families at the time, Lena was relatively uneducated, having only completed elementary school. So she worked as a servant in different households over the years, and she made an average of 10 to $12 a week. Hmm. Imagine. Right. <laughs> like, you can, like, you can, you, most people can't even really survive today making 10 to $12 an hour. Yeah. That's like a Big Mac. Thanks, inflation. inflation. (laughs) My God. So her body was exhumed and returned to Minneapolis, and there was a funeral, and the burial, again, was held on September 12th. She was, I don't know why, but apparently she was buried in an unmarked grave at the Lakewood Cemetery in Minneapolis. I I assume probably really it was because like her her sister or her family couldn't afford a, a marker. Right. Um, but I still think that's that's kind of sad. Uh, mm-hmm. The community and her friends and her family were super shocked by what had happened to her. And they were convinced that the man who killed her was an Englishman by the name of Albert A. Austin. Hmm. 
Now, Lizzie said that Albert was a bit older. He was a smooth talker. And even though her sister had never really fallen for that type of bullshit before, for whatever reason, this time she fell head over heels for him. Um, Lizzie said that she never liked him. She thought he was trash. She felt like he's just like a con artist. Or, she hated know, just, his derby hat. She, yes. <laughs> which, fair, he is a man inherently trash. But Lena did say that she was going to marry him, even though many people told her not to. And um, see, so Albert and Lena had met through her employer. She uh, kind of worked for what today would be considered like a temp agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they had met that previous April. So just a couple months before she died. And Albert apparently was looking for a woman um, to be a housekeeper because his wife had died and he needed help looking after his 12-year-old daughter. Now, they ended up mixing business with pleasure, as one does, and they they got busy. <laughs> I was waiting. I, say. <laughs> I was waiting how you were going to phrase that. <laughs> they, were, they, they, they fornicated. Yeah. They fornicated. They were being sinful. They were lusting after each other. Uh. But but they did get uh, engaged. He did propose in July, even though her friends just like protested. They were like, girlfriend, what are you doing? You barely even knew this man. But she was stubborn. And once she made up her mind about something, there was very little anyone could do to change it. And she had decided that she wanted to marry this fucking guy. So August 20th, 1894, they got married in a secret ceremony in St. Paul. Now, we're just getting out about Albert and the police are looking for him. They're going off of tips. They're like, we got to find this guy because they got married August 20th. She was found dead August 22nd. Damn. Unreal. Right. He didn't waste much time. No. Once his name was kind of being circulated, a front desk person at the Merchant's Hotel in Duluth found their names on the registry. They checked in August 21st under the name A. Austin and wife of St. Paul. So it wasn't even her name. Mm -hmm. It was just A. Austin. Now, this person recalled that neither of them had uh, luggage with them, which he thought was super weird. Yeah, that's odd. And another worker who worked the night shift remembered that at about 10.30 that night, Albert came into the hotel alone, paid the bill, and left. And then the next day, Lena's body was discovered. Wonder why he left. What a dink! But this fucking guy tried to establish an alibi because he contacted Emma Olson, who was no relation to Lena, but she was a friend. And he said... You know, we we got married. We went up to Duluth to go have like this nice little a mellifluous wedding. They wanted to go have a little honeymoon, and they had a fight. And she left to go live with her brother in South Dakota, and that she doesn't plan to contact anyone ever again. And he was going to return to England before returning to his actual home in Los Angeles. 
So apparently this guy had a state in England, St. Paul, and Los Angeles. Mm. So the police are like, we were asking who done it. Now we know who did it. Mm-hmm. Now we just got to find him. Yeah. So they did end up offering a $500 reward. A lot for those days. Yeah. Uh, for information leading to the um, arrest of Albert and the hunt was on nationwide, mind you, because mm. Emma said, like, look, he said he took off to L.A. He might be living in St. Paul. He might be in fucking England. We don't know. So over the next several months, multiple suspects were found, located, interviewed and ultimately let go in South Dakota, Illinois, New Orleans, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, kind of all over the place. Um, because they didn't have a picture of him. They did have a description, which was, you know, he was kind of like tallish, average size. He had big mustache, dark hair. He had like those big weird sideburns that I hate. Mm-hmm. And Lizzie was also bound and determined to find her sister's killer. And I'm not 100% sure why. Um, but she ended up going down to Chicago um, in or around January 14th, the following year, to a police station. I think there was there must have been a lead or something down there because she went through about 12,000 mugshots, hoping wow. to be able to find the man who killed her sister. And she did eventually find one that she was pretty sure was Albert. But the name of the man on the photo was a James Driscoll, who also went by the name O'Shea. He was a pickpocket who was arrested in Chicago, um, 1892. However, back in Minneapolis, the police and the investigation had their doubts. And someone else who was close to Lena was also shown the photo and was like, no, I don't think that's him. That's him. So uh, the case went cold for quite a while. Lots of cases of mistaken identities, you know, chasing red herrings, dead ends. Blah, blah, blah. But then a woman by the name of Elizabeth Guimond, I think is how you pronounce it, came forward with some of her suspicions. You see, she said that a man uh, stayed in her Minneapolis boarding house under the name of Albert Ellenson. He had stayed for five weeks and apparently didn't pay her a dime. Mm. And she wasn't none too happy about that but she did say that he had requested that any mail addressed to a mr a a austin be given to him and she was like why are you going (laughs) by two names why do you need that mail yeah so moral of this story by the way if you're gonna do commit a murder or something like that don't piss anybody off by not paying them because they're going to remember that shit and call you out for it. Oh, for sure. They're going to remember. So he did end up dipping out. Didn't pay Elizabeth at all. Uh, so eventually she ended up searching through this little bag, like a little, you know, like those, you know, those like they're like they're like yay big and men use use them for travel. They put like their shaving shit. Oh, yeah, I've got one of those. There. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? So yeah. one of those. But they, they went by a fancy name. So he didn't pay. She's like, why are you going through two names? Going by two names. She, she searches through the little bag. She found papers addressed to James E. Alsip from Tacoma, Washington. 
Apparently, he was not unknown to the Minneapolis police. He, at one point in time, got in trouble for real estate fraud, theft, and Elizabeth did run into him in August of 1894 at Minnehaha Falls, and he was with a young woman who she did realize was Lena. Mm. So with this, with this renewed hope, uh, the Minneapolis police brought in some handwriting detectives com- to compare the handwriting from the ledger on the hotel in Duluth and then comparing it to the handwriting that was um, on these papers found in his bag. Yeah. And the experts said that there was an interesting way that the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. And from from what I gathered, it seemed to be considered written by the same person. Mm-hmm. So then two officers were sent out on April 7th, 1896 to track down James, a.k.a. Albert Austin, a.k.a. Albert Ellenson, a.k.a. I don't know, probably he's got a couple other names in there. Mm. And it seems that our good old buddy James here had a little bit of a fallen from grace story it sounds like he had done pretty well for himself um early earlier on in his life was kind of my understanding but that didn't last long and he ended up getting himself into some legal trouble he burned a lot of bridges with some friends and associates and there was even some suspicion now that he may have been involved in the death of his first wife. Yeah, I was thinking that when you told me he had originally been married. I wonder if he offed her. Yeah, he had been married a couple times, actually. First wife died. Second wife, at this point in time, he's still married to. Mm. Not Lena. Right. Well, I guess if they did actually get married, even though it was under a different name, Lena would have been probably his second wife, but I would assume there would probably be some other women in between. Right. But... Here's where it gets a little good. James. Not the criminal mastermind he thought he was, was eventually tracked down, found, and arrested on April 16th, 1896 in Seattle. He was charged with two murders. The first was Lena Olson in August of 1894 and Charlotte Fetting from September of... 1893. Now you might be saying, "Wow, who's Charlotte?" Haven't yeah. heard, haven't heard her name Mm-mm. mentioned before. Well, apparently Charlotte was an 80-some-year-old woman who was brutally assaulted and murdered, quite similarly to Lena. And he had had some sort of involvement with her, and the motive for him killing her was um, money, which seemed to be the motive behind most of his crimes, either petty or serious so while he was being interviewed our guy here had plenty of excuses but um apparently he was also behaving kind of strangely erratic and yeah and he did get served with divorce papers by his then wife and they yeah so the investigators and the detectives believed that he was about to break and confess everything but some of them also thought that maybe he was a potential suicide risk. Um, 
But in the end, he was not placed uh, under like suicide watch or anything. Uh-oh. And around 8 p.m., the no. um, night guard at the jail went into his cell during rounds and all was good, except James was complaining about being cold, even though he did have a blanket. So um, I think the night guard was like left to maybe go get him another blanket i'm not 100 percent sure if he just went about his rounds and said fuck you like you're a prisoner i don't give a shit about your comfort but anyway a couple hours later the um one of the minneapolis detectives john courtney returned to the station and he was like let me see him so they're bringing him back to his cell and that is when they discovered the body of James hanging by a handmade rope between the bunk bed's footboard and the sink. So, he killed himself. I mean, we saw that coming, didn't we? Yeah. At least they caught up to him, though. Yeah. Well, and I think that at the time, like, the punishment for this crime, he would have been executed. So, he yeah. probably figured- Firing squad or something. Yeah, who knows for sure. But word spread quickly that he had killed himself, and it was widely accepted that he had indeed killed Lena. He killed Charlotte. And um, in the book that I read about this, it, it somewhere in there it mentioned that he may have also killed as many as 10 people, wow. although he was never charged with any of them. He really wasn't even charged with killing his first wife, but they were quite suspicious that that he did that which i mean if he's gonna marry a girl and kill her two days later and kill an old lady for her money right and he has He'll 27 different yeah he has like 27 different names that for sure he yeah. killed some other people right. for sure you can't convince me otherwise yeah so thus concludes our story for today but i do want to mention really quick that um i like all of my source material for today came from a really awesome book called murder at minnesota point by jeff Save suave south i am so sorry jeff i don't know how to pronounce your last name and i tried to google it but i couldn't really find it either. Can really find the answer so i'm really sorry but anyway um i really just did want to mention that what we talked about today was just like kind of like the main big points and this book is so good you guys there's a lot of details backgrounds side stories clippings from old newspapers at the time yeah you were alluding that it goes much further down the rabbit hole yeah it's it's the um the author goes so in depth and he spent so much time going into old records and kind of just his story behind why he wanted to write this book is really sweet but what also is really sweet you remember how i mentioned that she was buried in an unmarked grave yeah so the author said that he would use the proceeds from the sale of his book to purchase and install a proper memorial stone for oh, her oh that's so cool yeah so he said that um, uh, a lot of people have already, you know, given given donations and sales and yada yada. So he he does expect to have the marker installed in the spring. We're gonna have to go check it out. Yeah, we will for sure. Road, Road trip. trip. We'll have to leave some flowers, but yeah, um, yeah I did just want to plug this book. 
yeah, I'll put a link to the book um, in the show notes and also on the social media pages. Speaking of the social media pages. Yeah, you should you should definitely come hang out with us on some of the social medias. You can do that on Twitter, on Natural the Pod, Instagram, on Natural the Podcast. We also have a Facebook page, Unnatural, a true crime podcast. You can also send us an email, unnaturalthepodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash unnaturalthepod. And as always, please, please, please be sure to rate, subscribe, follow, and share us with your friends, you guys. We do appreciate it. Well, the best way, you know, for a podcast like ours to grow is by word of mouth. And if you're not telling your friends, you're making a mistake. Yeah, you are. And you might get got. Yeah, I mean, if you're not sharing us with your friends, you certainly are not making good choices. And what do we say at the very end of every episode? Make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. And they were certain of this uh, mostly because of the bracelet. Hmm. Yeah, a so very Kate, unique bracelet. Bracelet? Bracelet. Bracelet? It's a very, <laughs> very unique bracelet. A very unique bracelet. Bracelet. And they're mm. off. Da, 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 da. Okay. <sighs> Thanks, Daylight Savings Time. Which is actually just called Daylight Saving Time. Did I blow your mind? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Whatever. It's okay. okay. Everybody calls it daylight savings time. Daylight saving time. Daylight savings time sounds better. I know. It does. It's the Mandela effect. Is it? Maybe. Maybe. All starts with the Berenstein Bears. Um, detectives from Superior, Washington, kind of across the lake, also came... Wisconsin. You said Washington. Yeah. You said Washington. I'm just trying to help you. Oh, did I say Washington? <laughs> I don't know See, why. See, first I said you Washington. were looking at me like I was the asshole. <laughs> um, she said that the woman had appeared happy, but couldn't say the same with the man. That he appeared to be irritated every time she spoke. <laughs> I mean, I've I've seen some relationships like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. From both the man and the woman. Yeah. So, um... Where they're like, just shut up. Stop talking. Kind of like how I am right now. With me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. How ironic. <laughs> huh. This man was named Joseph McNa- McNam? McName? McNamie?